even though he was just there with the council and they all said, you don't have to get circumcised, Timothy says, yes, why? Because he understands the principle. What's the principle? That we would do everything in our power not to make it difficult for people to turn to God. Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb. In our current Firm Foundation series, we are exploring spiritual disciplines, the habits and behaviors that drive and shape our hearts as we strive to grow and live in Christ. You can find more information about this teaching series and our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. And now here's this week's message. Good morning. If you have your Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab that and find the book of Acts, Acts chapter 15. Um, This is about two-thirds through your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. Uh, Find Acts 15 with me. While you're looking for that, last week we started a new series called A Firm Foundation, and here's what it's all about. Ever since the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, we hear that our mission as a church and the mission of every single church throughout the world has been given to us by Jesus in Matthew chapter 28 when he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me and I now give it to you. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And so go and make disciples is the mission of the church. And every local church has a similar kind of pithy statement that alludes to this. And the way that we say it around here at Gateway is our mission is helping people to love and serve Jesus. Helping people to love and serve Jesus. So when when we say love, we want to encourage men and women and young people to be fully devoted followers of Jesus, that they would make much of Jesus, that they would love Jesus, that they would have a personal relationship with Jesus. And when we say serve, we want to see the people of Gateway and everyone we come into contact with to use their education, their time, their energy, their relationships, and indeed their very lives for the expansion of God's kingdom. And that's what we want to help all of us as the family of faith to do, helping people to love and serve Jesus. But to understand our mission, you have to understand how we believe that happens. And we believe that our mission is cultivated by living the life of a Jesus follower. And we see that everything that Jesus did on his earthly ministry and passed on to his disciples was based on relationships, three in particular, right? His relationship with his heavenly father, his relationship with his disciples, and his relationship with a wondering world. And Jesus was all about relationships. And one of the things that we really wrestled with last week is in recognizing that God is calling us to live out our faith as disciples, not just believers. That's one of the things that we like to say around here. We want to make disciples who make disciples. We don't just want to have believers. And here's the reason why. We believe that the only difference between a believing demon and a believing disciple of Jesus is our behavior. So here's what we noted last week that's in your note sheet again on discipleship. Discipleship is just as much about our behavior as it is our thinking. 
right? So if discipleship was just about our thinking, then we would have to say that the demons have even greater discipleship than us because they have greater faith than us. They have a greater conviction in the things that Jesus has done, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and they have greater clarity and focus on the doctrines that we hold dear, and they have a greater conviction that Jesus will one day return again in glory. All of that, they outshine everyone in this room. And yet we know the difference between a believing demon and a disciple of Jesus is we want to walk with Jesus on the discipleship road. It's as much about our behavior as it is our thinking. And so this, this whole series, what it's all about, is questioning our behaviors. Are we walking with Jesus? Are we walking with Jesus on the discipleship road? Are we prioritizing our time and our energy and our talent and our focus walking with Jesus? May it be said of us, the dust of your rabbi Jesus is all over you. My goodness, you look like Jesus. Even for people who don't know who Jesus is, they would say there's, there's something different about you. Your love, your joy, your peace, your patience, your kindness, your gentleness, your faithfulness, your self-control, there's something different about you. And that they would see Jesus all over us by way of our behavior and by way of what we say. And once again, Aiden, thank you for what you shared with us for your testimony this morning. That, may that be said of us too that both in our actions and in our speech, that we are following Jesus. So here's what we're trying to articulate and give greater clarity to. While our mission might say something like this, why does a church exist? Why does a Christian exist? Our vision is trying to give greater clarity to the question, what does a church do? What does a Christian do? What does it look like, practically speaking, for us to follow Jesus on the discipleship road? And we want to help you answer that question as clearly and as succinctly as we possibly can. Now, here's why. If our task as a church is helping people to love and serve Jesus, that is strengthening us in the faith and having us become disciples who make more and better disciples, if that is our goal, then we need to stop and ask ourselves that question, how has God guided us to grow? How has he designed for us to grow and to flourish? What are those catalytic environments that God uses to help grow his people? Because once we know the answer to that question, then we're going to say, that's what I need to prioritize. That's where I need to live. That's how I have to use my time so that I can grow in the likeness of Jesus. And so over the course of the next three weeks, we're going to look at that vision. Three things that we already articulated last week, but I'm going to share with you once again. Three things that we've identified for our vision. And we see in Scripture, all over Scripture, these three behaviors are outlined as a way for the body of Christ to grow. And in the book of Revelation, you might recall when we went through that series these three behaviors were outlined as a way to defend ourselves against the schemes of the evil one. That the churches, the seven churches in Asia that were really struggling were doing at least two of these things really well, but a third they were not. And so here's the three. We want to be biblically serious, we want to be community driven, and we want to be relentlessly missional. So we're going to look at each of those three over the course 
of the next three weeks. And today, we're talking about being biblically serious. What does it look like, practically speaking, to be biblically serious? So here's what we mean by that. To be biblically serious is to treat God's word as the ultimate authority of our lives. The way I've shared it with you before is when the Bible says jump, we say how high that there's no other authority under heaven or earth that we will follow and give our lives to other than this book. And in fact, it's even more than that because John chapter one says Jesus is the word. So to know the word is to know Jesus and to know Jesus is to know his word. And if we want to become disciples of Jesus, then we need to know what he has said to us. This is his love letter to his people so that we can grow and flourish as disciples of Jesus. And so we want to live and breathe the word of God. And when we're cut, we want to bleed the word of God. So here are the questions that I want us to consider this morning. One is a practical question for the church and one is for us as individuals. I put it this way. How do we become biblically serious as a church, as a corporate body of Christ, as the family of God when we gather together as God's people? And equally important, how do we become biblically serious as individuals? It's not an either or, it's a both and, and we're gonna look at that. So let's look at the first question in regards to the church. How do we become biblically serious as a church? And you'll notice both this week and next week and the week after that, all the answers that, that we want to lay at your feet are answers that are based on our behavior and the way that we use our time. So here's the first one I put in your note sheet. We're calling this gather time, that you would worship weekly on the weekend, that you would worship weekly on the weekend. We want you to fully engage with the people of God in worshiping with us. It is the highest calling of our lives. The Westminster Catechism asked this question, what is the chief end of humanity? And the answer to that question is that we would glorify God and enjoy him forever. The greatest essence of who we are, the reason why we've been made in the image of God is that we would glorify him, that we would give him all the glory that he is due. And scripture repeatedly communicates to us when we gather together as the people of God, something miraculous happens. In fact, we read that where two or more are gathered in the name of Jesus, praising him, opening up scripture, there the Lord is also. So something miraculous happens when we gather together as the people of God. A special manifestation of the Spirit joins us in this place as we worship. I love the way that Ted Bolzinger puts it in his book, It Takes a Church to Raise a Christian. He's talking about corporate worship, but he's also talking about how the body of Christ gathers together in iron sharpening iron. So what we call life groups, when you gather together in groups. So here's what he says about corporate worship and the gathering of God's people. He says, true and enduring Christian community is a foretaste of heaven. We read about that in Revelation 4, right? Every tribe, tongue, and nation gathering together, worshiping before the land that was slain. And so we have a foretaste of heaven when we gather together. It is the essence of true discipleship and iron sharpening iron. It is the true enduring witness to an unbelieving world that those on the outside looking in saying like, why do hundreds of people gather together to sing the praises of Jesus? 
It draws more people to Jesus when we do this well. And it is an absolute necessity for human transformation. That's a lot. That's a lot. And I recognize that, that I'm kind of preaching to the choir here, but here's the commitment that I'd love to lay at your feet, that you would commit to doing this every week. Every week, we would commit to do this, to gather together as the people of God, to make much of Jesus, to worship him and to sing his praises, and that we would be that commitment to one another as we do this well. So with all that laid out, I want us to look at Acts chapter 15, a fascinating passage of scripture in which the church of God is asking a lot of questions about what does it look like, practically speaking, for us to share the gospel with a wandering world and to be biblically serious as we do it. So here it is, verse one of chapter 15. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Now that's really interesting because those of you who were here last week, you will recall we were at Acts 16, the very next chapter, and Paul has already communicated two things. Number one, that circumcision has no value whatsoever. But number two, Timothy, you need to get circumcised. What? Why? We'll get to that. Hang on to that. Even Paul says to the church in Galatia, he says this in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. It doesn't have any value, but Timothy willingly gets circumcised. Why? Why? Well, we're going to get a good answer to that question in chapter 15. But what we see in this context is there are Jewish Christians who are telling all the Gentiles, you need to get surgery. You're going to be out for about two weeks. It's really painful but this is what you got to do to follow Jesus. Now, really interesting uh, thing about this, we know from historical sources that Christianity was the first religion that was primarily led by women and not men. Because in the first century context, we know that the, the, the mandate was that women had to follow the religion of their husbands. And yet there was a liberation that came from Christianity that many, many women were coming to faith. And so they would go home and they'd tell their husbands, I have found Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth is the son of the living God. And I have witnessed signs and wonders and miracles that have been conducted by the apostles and the elders. I want to bring you to church. And so perhaps after, you know, three or four or five commitments for them to come to church, finally her husband comes to church. And he sits in a worship service. And at the end of the service, you know, someone gets up and he says, you know, if, if you would like to make that commitment today to follow Jesus, why don't you come up? Why don't you get baptized? Why don't you repent of your sins? Oh, 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 one more thing. Before you leave today, just make your way out to the lobby and there's a little group back there. Make sure you get circumcised on your way out. And all the husbands are like, I'm out. I'm out. So we see that this is a barrier, Right? The women aren't too worried about it, but the men are worried. And so here's what we read in verse 2. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. 
So the word apostle means the people who actually followed with Jesus as disciples. They witnessed the three-year ministry of Jesus. Those are the apostles. And the elders. So these are the leaders of the church, much like we have elders today. So Paul and Barnabas are convinced that you do not need to be circumcised to follow Jesus. But they want to bring this up to the apostles so that there is clarity among all churches on what they ought and ought not do. We want to be on the same page. Because there's Jewish Christians walking around telling Gentiles that you have to get circumcised. And we don't believe that needs to happen. Look down at verse 5. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. So again, you have to see, these are Jewish Christians. It's not just Pharisees, it's not just Jews, it's Jews who now believe that Jesus is who he says he is. He is the Lord of the universe. But also, if anyone else wants to come in and become a Christian, they have to get circumcised too. That is what is being laid out to the apostles to consider. Then we read verse 6. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. That's good news to everyone in this room. We are now included in the covenant community. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by, what's the word? Help me out. By faith. By faith. Verse 11, we believe that it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. In other words, it is not through circumcision that someone is saved. It is by faith. And faith itself is a gift from God. That's what he's laying out to their feet. And it's interesting who talks next. It's James. And if you've read the book of James, you know that James is the one who steals this from Peter. And he says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is a gift. Even your faith is a gift from God. Paul is picking up on what Peter is saying right here. But it's so fascinating what he says all the way down verse 19. Take a look at this with me. James says, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And I have that verse underlined in my Bible as something that I want to be an anchor to the way that I live my life. An anchor to the way that I serve as your pastor of this church. That it would be said of us that we would not make it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God. That we would be biblically serious in all the things that God says. But if there are certain traditions or habits that we are following that are not on the same level as the doctrines that we hold dear. That they're, they're merely traditions that we are hanging on to. That we would not make it difficult. And you know, uh, James, who is a Jew, he's talking about Gentiles here. But if he was talking to us today, he would say it a little bit like this. We should not make it difficult for people. Who are turning to God. Not just Gentiles. But, but any people who are turning to God. So I want to show you. Here's how this played out. In chapter 15. 
when these Jewish Christians who were formerly Pharisees are saying everyone needs to get circumcised, the church decides no one has to get circumcised any longer because it is by grace through faith that we are saved and by no other thing you don't have to get circumcised and we want to not make it difficult for people who are turning toward God. But then in chapter 16, the very next chapter, Paul says, all right, Timothy, listen, we're going to a certain area where there's a lot of Jews and they believe that circumcision is without a doubt something that everyone has to get. And for that reason only, would you be willing to get circumcised? Even though he was just there with the council and they all said, you don't have to get circumcised, Timothy says, yes, why? Because he understands the principle. What's the principle? That we would do everything in our power not to make it difficult for people to turn to God. The way Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 9 is short of sin, and that's an important caveat, short of sin, we would be all things to all people so that by all possible means we might win some. So Acts 15, Acts 16, and 1 Corinthians 9, they're all underlined in my Bible because they're they're helping us unpack the essence of what it means to be the church. That we would do two things really well. Number one, we would be so biblically serious that we would say this is the ultimate authority of our life. But at exactly the same time, and not counter to that point, we would be the type of church that we would uphold Scripture but not anything else that might make it difficult for people to turn to God. That we would become less and Jesus would become more. That is the focus of the disciples. So if it's true that we should not make it difficult for people who are turning to God, and if corporate worship is the primary vehicle that God uses to bring people to himself, then this is the commitment that we want to make to you as your pastors, as your elders, as your council, as your staff. Here's what we want to lay at your feet as our commitment, that we would do this. We would create a space on Sunday where the word of God is boldly proclaimed, where hymns, songs, and spiritual songs are sung, where sacraments are shared, and where we uphold the prayers of God's people, and we would do all of that in such a way that you as mature Christians would be eager to invite your unchurched and unbelieving friends, that they could hear the word of God too, and they would rejoice with us as we share that good news. And so we recognize that when it comes to teaching, when it comes to music, when it comes to worship, it is primarily for believers. What we're doing right now is primarily for believers, but that everything we do would be done in such a way that uh, an almost Christian or a new Christian or someone on the outside looking in would understand what we're doing so that they too could be receptive to the gospel message. And it's for that reason that I want to lay at your feet what we just call as elders and pastors the worship bullseye. These are a group of four people that we think a lot about and we give a lot of consideration to. And the reason why is because of everything I shared with you. Acts 15, Acts 16, 1 Corinthians 9, and more. So here's the first person in the bullseye that we think about a whole lot. It is the new believer. The new believer. And this comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which says this. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. Behold, the old is gone and the new is here. 
And so for that new person, they have just been given a new heart. They had a heart of stone. It has become a heart of flesh. But also, for the sake of their understanding of Scripture, they're still baby Christians. There's things that they don't fully understand yet. And so that means in everything that we do as a corporate body of Christ, from our preaching to our worship to our liturgy to everything that we talk about, we want to do it in such a way that they would understand. So here's some examples of this. Uh, If I say words like justification or sanctification or propitiation, we're going to take a little bit of time to explain those terms. Or if I tell you to find some obscure passage in the Old Testament and we have a newcomer here who, you know, courageously brought their Bible, but they see that their neighbor found it in like two seconds because they've been following, uh, reading scripture for years, that will take a little bit more time and make sure that they know where that passage is. That we will always be gracious in the way that we lead so that anyone who feels like an outsider or a new Christian would understand why we're doing what we're doing. And they would be receptive to it. Now here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we're watering down our faith. Or appealing to the lowest common denominator. Because we've been doing this really for four years. Nothing's changing. And I think you've seen by now that what we typically do is we just walk through a text. We've walked through Daniel and Revelation. Arguably the two hardest books of the Bible. And typically we just march through the text. But we're always asking ourselves that question. What does it look like practically speaking. For someone who's just starting their faith journey. And is starting to ask those questions. Here's the second group of people. That we think about a lot. And that is an almost believer. An almost believer. This is someone who is kicking the tires on Christianity and maybe they've come up to you and they've said, you know, I have questions about this Jesus. And you say, like, come to my small group or come to my house or let's go out for coffee or you bring them to church. And they're asking questions. And you feel confident that you can bring them here because you know that we're not going to throw around really difficult theological terms without them understanding what it is. And once again... We're not talking about dumbing things down. We're talking about making sure that people can have a robust understanding of why we're doing what we're doing. And if they don't understand something, they're going to be eager to figure it out. And that we've set the table in such a way that almost believers can find their place here. That we would captivate hearts and minds and we would eliminate potential barriers for people who are discerning whether they want to follow Jesus with their whole heart. That's what we're seeking to do. So let me give you an example of this from Scripture. Uh, We're going to be starting our 1 Corinthians series in two weeks, but here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14. He says, So if the whole church comes together, and everyone speaks in tongues, and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? So here's the context here. Paul has just been telling the church, I would love for all of you to speak in tongues but never to the point where there's no interpretation so it doesn't build up the body of Christ. And if there was an outsider or an unbeliever who came in and he hears all of you speaking in tongues, will they not say, whoa, this is weird? Whoa, that's crazy? I've had that in my experience myself. I, I grew up in the Pentecostal church. I remember when uh, my mom moved to Belleville, Ontario when I was 12 years old and we went to a Pentecostal church and they were quite charismatic. And they started speaking in tongues and jumping up and down. And I was like a deer in headlights. Like, what's going on? I am in the wrong place. And I was someone who was following Jesus at that point. I just did not get it. 
And so what potential barriers are we creating for people who are on the outside looking in, trying to discern if they want to follow Jesus? Would we be willing to knock down those barriers for the sake of new Christians and for the sake of those who are receptive to the gospel but not yet following Jesus? Here's the third group of people that we consider. Our third target is a ninth grader. We must reach our students. Now, I hope you know by now that this congregation, led by Pastor Marcel and Jaden and our volunteer teams and our elders and our pastors and our staff, are going to do everything in our power to equip and empower our young people to leverage their lives to follow Jesus. You might not know this, but the missions trip that Aiden talked about, we're doing that again this year with our missions trip to Mexico and to Philippines and to Egypt, Jordan, Israel, we're bringing 99 young people on these trips. And it takes a whole lot of time. And Marcel has lost some hair over the course of the past years in leading these ministries. We're gonna do everything in our power to equip our young people. But if we don't also do it here, then it mitigates the very work that Marcel and his team are doing. Because you know the statistics as well as I do. Over the course of the last 20 years in U.S. and Canada, typically when students graduate from high school and youth group, they also at exactly the same time, triple whammy, graduate from church. And we don't want that to happen here. We don't want to be part of that trend. And so we want to equip our young people in such a way that they would all say exactly what Aiden shared with us this morning that we would be the body of Christ to one another, that we would equip one another, and we would find a deep sense of community here. That's what we want to enliven in the lives of our young people. And finally, the fourth target for us is a mature believer. Someone who has been following Jesus for a long, long time. Now, I feel like I just have to say this one more time. This does not mean we're trying to dumb things down. It doesn't mean we're not going to talk about really difficult topics. It just means that we are thinking about these in this particular order. And there's a reason for that. Here's why. I want you to picture this in your mind. Um, For those of you who are parents of young children, do you ever um, help cut the meat for your kids? You don't give them a sharp knife right? You cut the meat for them, right? Or, or maybe they spill a lot. I have a kid. He's not here right now, so I can say it. Noah, he just spills everything. So we usually pour the juice or the water for him. And when he was especially young, we put a sippy cup on that thing so he didn't spill it, right? Or if there's hot plates, we usually have the hot plates close to the parent and not close to the kids because they might reach out and burn their hand, Or we might serve them first and they not serve themselves. Otherwise, they make a huge mess. Why do parents cook rice for children? I've said that to Julie before. Rice is a mess. Don't cook rice. That's my hot tip to you young parents. However, here's what I want you to see. If we don't prioritize our children, what happens? They don't enjoy a meal. Right? or they burn their hand, or they make a mess, or something happens that we don't want to experience. So at the dinner table, we prioritize our kids. But here's the point I want you to see. Do you still eat? Yes, you do. Now, show of hands. Parents, how many of you with young children don't get hot meals, you get lukewarm meals? 
Where you at? Yeah, that's right. That's what I remember. Uh, our youngest now is four. And so we're just getting to that stage where we're enjoying hot meals again. Oh my goodness, what a treat. What a gem. But for years, we would have lukewarm meals because we're serving the kids first, and by the time we eat it, it's not hot anymore. So there is an accommodation. There is a loss that is tied to that. But as parents, we want to make sure that everyone at the table is prioritized. So here's the way I want you to think about it. Think about it like this with me. If we don't connect with a new believer, what happens? They won't stay. They won't stay. If someone trusts in Jesus, but they don't connect with us at Gateway, that's not their fault, that's ours. That's our fault. We, we haven't created uh, an accommodative space for them to fully connect with the people of God in this place. We haven't created the appropriate accommodations for them to enjoy the meal. Likewise, if we don't connect with an almost believer, what happens? It's even worse. They won't believe. They won't believe. Now, if God is after their heart, he'll get them another way. So I'm, I'm not talking about, you know, we're going to get in the way of God's sovereignty. But what I do want you to convince you of is they might go down the street, but don't we want God to do amazing things right here in this place to help people to love and serve Jesus here? And if we want that, then we want to create the appropriate accommodations for them to learn more about Jesus and to thrive in faith right in this place. If we don't connect with a ninth grader, what happens? They'll check out. Well, they obviously can't leave yet because their parents are committed to coming here every week, and so they got to go to church, and they got to sit on their chair. But eventually, when they can make their own choices, then they'll leave. Then they'll leave. Now, here's the great irony. Well, let's get to the, the final question here. What happens if we don't connect with a mature believer? They'll tell us. And that's okay. That's okay. We, we want to hear those things. And especially in that context where they're helping us discern how we can do this really well, right? How we can make much of Jesus, how we can be biblically serious, identifying the blind spots that we might have. Man, that's important. We need to hear those things. But they'll tell us. They'll tell us. I'm telling you, as I've been a pastor for almost 10 years, here's what I know. More, than, more often than not, 99% of the time, if we're not connecting with a new believer, an almost believer, or a ninth grader, they won't tell us. They won't tell us. that They'll just leave. Or they'll bide their time, and then they'll leave. But more often than not, if we're not connecting with a mature believer, they will tell us. And again, that's okay. That's great. That is how we can live out the body of Christ. But we have to prioritize all four. All four. If we want to live out the Great Commission the way that Christ commands us to do so. So you, you heard me say this parable to you last week. I, I said it this way. Give me a place to stand to move the world. Give me a place to stand to move the world. We refuse to be a place that merely is a place to stand all by itself for the sake of being a place to stand without moving the world. But we also refuse to be a place where we treat members of this body like cogs in a wheel just so that we can move the world. No, we want people to be loved, known, and accounted for. We want to disciple God's people. We want them to use their gifts in such a way that they flourish and they expand God's kingdom in every single way that God wants to use them. But we want to do both really, really well. Through God's help, we want to do both to the best of our ability. And so here's what our hope is. That every mature believer would say something like this. Gateway is a place 
where I, as a mature believer, am eager to invite my questioning, my unchurched, and my unbelieving friends. That this is the right place to bring them. Even as I am equipped and built up in the faith after following Jesus for 20, 30, 40 years, that I'm also eager for this to happen for my other friends who don't yet know Jesus, and this is the place to bring them. So here's a key question for those of you who are mature believers. I want to lay this at your feet. Are you willing to serve others first when we gather at the dinner table? Are you willing to remove barriers that make it difficult for people to turn to God. For those of you who are mature believers, I'm asking the same question that those of you who are parents do. Are you willing to eat food that's a little bit cold? Are you willing to serve yourself second and to serve them per- first? To not make it difficult for people who are considering coming to faith because you're the mature believer. One thing we know, especially for new Christians and people who are kind of kicking the tires on Christianity. They're not daily actively reading scripture and praying and getting together in groups and doing all the discipleship habits that many of you are doing. This is all they get, at least at the beginning. And so we want to create the appropriate accommodations for them to experience the love of Jesus. So if Gateway is your church, the first step that we're asking everyone to do is to worship with us weekly on the weekend and that you would commit to doing it every week that you would prioritize your schedule in such a way that as the body of Christ, we would keep doing this every single week together. And here's the second one. We, we also ask the question, how do we become biblically serious as individuals? And the way that we say this is, we want you to be devoted to God time. Time spent daily alone in fellowship with God. And these are ultimately tied to our spiritual disciplines. If this is new for you, there's two that I want to lay at your feet. Number one, I want you to commit to reading the Bible daily. And number two, to commit to praying daily. That it would be a daily commitment of your life. Now, if you choose to read the Bible in a year or not, that's perfectly fine. You don't have to do those things. But that you would commit to reading scripture every day. And if you miss a day, you say, well, I'm going to get back on that train. I'm going to do it tomorrow. And that we make these commitments. And if you've already been doing this, you can consider adding a third or a fourth spiritual discipline. Like fasting. Or like journaling. Or reading books that help you go deeper in your faith. Or serving as an individual. Or uh, giving, stewarding of your time or your talent or your treasure. These are many, many different ways that you can steward your gifts to grow deeper with God. Consider adding a third or a fourth to your arsenal. And if you're looking for tips on this, I don't have this on the screen, but there is a spiritual disciplines handbook. You can get it probably on Amazon, written by Calhoun, and it is a fantastic guide when it comes to identifying spiritual disciplines to help you grow deeper in your faith. And so here's the commitment that we want to make alongside you. Our commitment as pastors and elders and council is we want to make resources available to help you in your discipleship journey. That's the reason why. If you have a sermon guide right now, you flip behind it, there's a Bible reading plan. It's the reason why on our website we have a grow section on our page to help you go deeper. It's the reason why every single time we have a sermon series, we put a booklet together with resources and prayers and guides to help you go deeper. We want to do everything we can to help you 
We want to show you a way so you can find your way. There's nothing prescriptive about this. We just want to help you go deeper in your faith to live these things out. Because again, like I shared with you already, discipleship is as much about our behavior as it is our thinking. And the example that I shared with you last week is kind of like love. At the beginning, everything is butterflies, right? Every single time, you know, you touch the hand of the person that you like, you know, you, you start to sweat a little bit and, you know, your hands get clammy and sweaty and you're just so filled with endorphins and all those kinds of things. That's great. That's how it always starts. That's the honeymoon phase. But eventually, it, your love needs to be sustained by something greater, something more sustaining, something more beautiful, where love becomes a choice. A choice. And so the question that I once again want to lay at your feet is this. Would you choose today to place yourself in environments where God grows his people? Would you do that? Would you make these commitments so that you can grow deeper in your faith? And for those of you who are mature believers, I have one additional question to ask of you. Would you be willing to do exactly what James is calling us to do in Acts chapter 15, verse 19, that we would not make it difficult for people who are seeking to turn to God to hear the gospel? Would you join us in that mission to help people to love and to serve Jesus? You've been listening to the latest message in our Firm Foundation series focused on the practical habits and spiritual behaviors that lead to growing in Christ. You can find more information about this series and our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time on the weekly sermon at Gateway.